Okay, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. And if you are in kindergarten or all the way through fifth grade and your parents have checked you in, uh, you can be dismissed. Uh, this is where we're going to dismiss our kids to Camp Redstone. Look at those girls in the back. They're holding up Camp Redstone signs. So, yeah, if you are a little one and, you would, and your parents think it's okay for you to go to class, uh, there are the, the team back there, and uh, they have a great lesson for you, I believe, uh, this month. We're going to be studying Nehemiah, and so parents, if uh, you know very little about uh, the, the book of Nehemiah, you may want to read up because your kids are going to have one up on you in the next month. So there goes uh, Camp Redstone. Uh, welcome to Redstone Church, everyone. My name is Spencer. It's uh, really, really a pleasure to open up God's Word with you and to um, kind of dive into a topic uh, that may step on our toes just a little bit, but as these guys leave, uh, real, real quick, uh, who wore orange yesterday and who wore blue and gold yesterday? So this, so we were in a little bit of a tension here in East Tennessee. Do we pull for our beloved Vols or are we just full-fledged homers and we've got blue and gold on? So if you are, were a buccaneer yesterday, yesterday, go ahead and raise your hand. Any bucks yesterday? Go, bucks, go. Go, bucks, go, right? Okay, and, so, and then anybody brave enough to wear orange Anybody? There was a couple of R's. That's no bad. That's good. That's good. That's great. Uh, anyway, I didn't see, but like 30 seconds of the game, it seemed um, like it was a good game. <laughs> it seemed like it was. The, they played football, and they tackled one another. Um, okay, so um, if you've got your scriptures, go ahead and turn to the first chapter of Mark. Uh, we've got our Bibles, uh, and uh, historically they've been split into two halves. We've got the Old Testament, we've got the New Testament, and then to start off the New Testament, we've got the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The second of that Gospel is Mark. Uh, this next semester we'll be traveling through the first eight chapters in uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, and so we're really, really excited about that. And here is our assumption as you're turning there. I'll go ahead and just kind of talk on top of, of your turning. Here's our assumption, is that you and I, we need to begin to think very critically about our faith, all right? We need to engage our brains. We need to engage our minds when it comes to our faith journey. A lot of us have forgotten our mind. We've forgotten that our brains need to be involved when it comes to our faith. We have segmented a faith to something else other than what we think about and how we are critical about what we believe. But a belief statement is really just something that happens up here in our minds. So the main verse, actually we circled it last week, happens in, in chapter 8. It tells us that we need to put our minds or to set our minds, right? Here it is, right here, are noggins. To put our minds, to set our minds on the things that are above or the things that are of God, not the things that are of man. And so this semester, we're going to be struggling through how to engage our minds and how to be better critical thinkers and how to keep our minds from going astray. 
So just this morning, I've had two separate kind of prayer sessions for this moment early in the, you know, the, the morning and then about 8 o'clock. And in both of those times, just praying. And so I'm a guy who is supposed to get up here and to deliver God's Word, using God's Word. You're supposed to use these types of things. So you often pray before you kind of give away these types of things. And so in both times of prayer for, for you, for me, for God's Word to go forward, my minds or my thoughts went sideways. And so my, just, my, my insecurities kind of went sideways. My fears went sideways. Anxieties, those types of things. And so my, I, were, I was unable to get a hold of my thoughts inside prayer, right, for a pretty important meeting as in to engage in God's Word. That's how quickly our minds can flee. And so it tells, the scriptures are, are quick to tell us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, souls, and minds and our strength, right? To, to set our minds on the things above, not the things that are below. For us to have the same mind of Christ Jesus. So our minds and our thought life are really, really important to Jesus. And so when Mark chapter 8 verse 33 tells us to set our minds on the things of God, not the things of man, this semester we will be in a battle. Last week I asked permission to kind of bring a rebuke or whether you were willing to be corrected by this statement. Whether you are putting too much thought or too much energy or maybe too much imagination in the wrong place. And so that's where we're going to be again this, this morning. But as we traditionally kind of start in the, book, the beginning of the book of Mark, we'll be heading that way. Mark gives us a couple of themes that I want to kind of just pick up on before we kind of get into the particulars. First and foremost is that there is an internal action that happens before behavior. Uh, Mark is quick to say that you need to engage your mind, but he also uses the word heart. And he will also use the word soul, and he will also use the word life, right? Not life as in your, you know, the, the biology part of your life, but kind of your psyche. And so that there's this internal being uh, that makes up who you are. And so often we look at whether we are a follower of Jesus or whether we have a faith journey, and we only look at the externals. We only look at your participation inside that, that faith journey rather than saying there has to be a dialogue inside that happens first. So for Mark, the mind and the heart and the soul and the life is actually a precursor to those actions that we actually behold. And so if it's important to Mark, it needs to be important to us that what's happening up here is as important as your attendance at a church service this morning. Or your thought life, or taking every thought captive, is as important as the actual prayers that you pray. And so that's what's happening. The second major theme inside of, of Mark that we're going to be kind of picking up on is this idea of followship. This idea that the disciples and the crowds and the Pharisees and all of these people were following after Jesus. We are asking you, and the same way that Mark is going to ask you, who are you following? Like, are you following Jesus or not? And it's really kind of just to kind of step on your toes as to who are you following but to take a little bit of a twist here, to, to, to engage our minds, the question for us all semester will be, why? Why are you following Jesus? Like, is there a reason? 
is there a rationale? Is there any kind of cognitive thinking that goes along with your faith? Why are you following Jesus? Every day of the disciples' lives, they had to kind of re-up as to why, because they literally dropped their security, they dropped everything to follow this guy. So mentally, they, were, they had to engage in that question. But why are you? In, in chapter 8 that we talked about last week, it says, but who do you say that I am? So why are you husband, wife, middle schooler, high schooler, college student? Why are you following after Jesus? Some of us have reasons, but they may not be very good reasons. Some of us are just uh, following Jesus because that's what our parents told us to or our grandparents told us to. And so this is kind of generationalism where you're just following Jesus because that's, that's all you know. Some of us are just kind of regional, like this is just the place that we were born. And so everybody in the South kind of gets up on Sunday morning and kind of goes and does this thing. And so maybe those are reasons, but these aren't great reasons. Um, this semester, we want to give you good reasons why you need to be setting your, th- your minds on the things of God and actually following Jesus on purpose. And all of this is cognitive. All of this is mine, to engage your mind, to rationally say that this Jesus who I follow is on purpose and on point with my entire life. And so if you don't have very good reasons, that's okay. All right, that's all right. This morning you're going to have at least one. All right, so let's read the passage. I'll pause at the, the only one statement, you know, all day. It's just this one statement as to why you rationally, you know, uh, why you can cognitively follow Jesus. So this is Mark chapter 1, verse 1 and following, and this is the Word of God, and it reads like this. Um, if you don't have your Bibles with you, it's okay. Everyone should have a worship guide. You can grab that. That's, uh, the, it's printed in, in the worship guide, so you can grab that. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Verse 4, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to uh, to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 is kind of the main idea for this morning. That there is one that will come after me who is mightier than I. If you need one reason to follow Jesus, right? If you, just, you, just, if you need just one, it's that he is the strong one. That he is mightier than you. And all day long, all right, all morning long, we will, be, we will be looking at how Jesus is stronger and he is mightier than everything else in this passage. And then it says this in, in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10, And he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, 
saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the Spirit, no, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus is mightier than we are. If you need a good reason to worship Jesus, to follow after Jesus, it's that time and time and time again in this passage, the opening of Mark, people are pointing to him and say, you need to recognize him as great and he, him as might or him as strong or him as, as well-pleased. And so whether it's the angels whether it's God himself, whether it's the angels, whether it's an Old Testament prophet or John the Baptist, everyone is pointing and validating Jesus as the strong one. If you need a reason to follow Jesus this morning, it's that he is the strong one. He is mightier than you are. And so we're going to see three ways in which people are, are, are pointing to Jesus and validating or, or lifting him up. One we see early on is that uh, John the Baptist is validating Jesus. So we're going to see it from the earthly perspective. The second thing is we see that the, the heavens are torn open. So we'll actually see this validation from a heavenly perspective. And then lastly, we're actually going to see a villain, uh, Satan himself, validating Jesus because he's tempting Jesus. And so from the earthly perspective, from the heavenly perspective, and then even just when a villain shows up, all of these people are validating Jesus in some way or another. Here's the point. There's a lot of effort and energy pointing to Jesus to lift him up. Are you? Are you spending your energy? Are you spending your thought life? Are you spending your syllables or your days? Or have you given your life to elevate Jesus? And that's kind of, the, kind of the main idea for this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into kind of just this earthly, earthly perspective. And so, Jesus, as we teach this material, uh, will you allow us to be confronted by these things? Um, even this morning, my mind wandered away from these truths because I wanted to hold on to something else that ended up being an insecurity of mine stronger than holding or lifting you up. And so if it's true in my heart, it's true in, in all of ours. So protect us in these next moments together. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's go back to um, the, verse number one. In, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, right? Behold, I send my messenger before, the, before your face, who will prepare your way in the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord or, and make his path straight. So the first kind of pointer, the first kind of person that's pointing or validating, lifting Jesus up, is someone that existed four to six hundred years before Jesus existed. All right? That's a big deal. No one has ever talked about you more than maybe nine months before you were born. Okay? Right? So when your mom and dad knew that you were going to be on the planet, someone said, that's going to be a good day. And that's about all you got is somewhere between nine and, and, and six months before you were born. Jesus Four, six, eight hundred, maybe some would even argue, thousands of years before Jesus steps foot on the planet, people are talking about him. That's a big deal. 
So the Old Testament prophets, as we say, we see that this is attributed to, to, to Isaiah. Uh, theologians look at this quotation. As it's almost a direct quote from Isaiah 40. But there's also two other Old Testament passages that are kind of woven in and out of this passage. We don't need to like dissect this other than that there is going to be a person. And someone is going to have to prepare the way for him. And it is not by accident when Jesus shows up that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. People have been pointing to Jesus before Jesus was even on the planet. And so you and I need to at least consider pointing to Jesus with our lives. And that's really the point. The fact is that from cover to cover, right, this entire book is pointing to Jesus. And it really is a... a, um, a sad thing that we have labeled this the Old Testament and the New Testament as if one was antiquated and out of touch and the other was kind of new and shiny. When in fact, from the, almost, uh, from the early pages of Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, we see this entire book lifting up and pointing to Jesus himself. And so if the entire book is pointing to Jesus, we're encouraging you to point to Jesus with your lives. Um, all of Scripture is about Jesus. And some of us um, need kind of a charge or kind of a re-up on our Bible reading, all right? And so at Redstone Church, we use a tool. It's not, you know, the best tool in the world, but it is a tool. It's not the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it's the word, which is, the, which is bread, which is good. And so we have a tool. It's called the Community Bible Reading Plan, all right? If you need kind of to re-up on your daily Bible reading, if you need to think about ways in which all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus, we want to actually give you a tool this morning. It's called the Community Bible Reading Plan. It's a little journal. We usually charge for it. But this morning, like, we just want to just give it to you as a gift. All right? It's on the back table. If you just need to kind of re-up your daily reading, if you kind of just need to re-up this discipline of looking at the Scriptures and seeing how the Scriptures are pointing to Jesus and seeing that impact your life, just know that there's a tool on the back table. If you do take one, make sure you fill out a card and let us know that you filled out one. We would like to have a small conversation with you about how to use the tool, those kinds of things. But nonetheless, is that for hundreds of years... The Old Testament prophets were pointing to Jesus. And so these earthly men are pointing to Jesus before he even arrives. In the same way, look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist appears, and he appears in the wilderness, and he's, 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 um, he's dressed like crazy, and people are coming out to him. But verse 7 is really the kind of the emphasis that we want to bring out, that it's not just the old guys, all right, the Old Testament prophets that are pointing to Jesus, a real live on the on the planet kind of guy, John the Baptist, in real time, verse 7, is pointing to Jesus. And he preached to them saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I will baptize with water, but he is going to come and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so John is telling everybody, I am something. Y'all aren't out here in the wilderness by accident. So yes, I am a prophet. Yes, I speak God's word. Yes, I am able to baptize you and call you to repentance. But that is nothing compared to who Jesus is. John is pointing people to someone that is greater than him. You may have unbelievable gifts and abilities on this planet. 
And all of those gifts and abilities are given to you by God himself. And yet, if you are not using those gifts and using that, those abilities to shift everyone's attention back to Jesus, it is a gift that will fall to the ground. The only thing that will last, the only thing that will be made valid will be when you turn those things and point them and credit Jesus to validate him with everything. And so come, prepare the way of the Lord. This is what John the Baptist did. And there's one who's going to be mightier than I. It's always personal. And so we'll need to pause and to say, why are you following Jesus or considering following Jesus? Because it's always personal. Jesus is not just an abstract object or something to consider. It always hits home. Yes, Jesus is mighty. But are you able to take it the next step to say he is mightier and stronger than I am? And this is what steps on our toes because we have the agenda and we think we know what is best. But by pointing to Jesus, we are validating that he is the one and the one that we will follow. So there's a lady whom you've never met and so that's why it's, it's easy for me to use her name. She was a roommate of Nicole's in college. Her name was Rosie. Now, Rosie was just the, just the typical, like, first child, always obedient, like, always kind of, like, in line, a little bit type A. She just, this is, this is who Rosie is. And so Rosie grew up in a home where her dad was a preacher, so she had to, whether she liked to or not, had to sit in a seat like that, whether she wanted to be there or not, just because that's what preachers' daughters do is they show up at church, right? And so as an obedient child, she just sat there, sermon after sermon, those types of things. So obedient was, was, was Rosie that she didn't just leave her, her home when she got uh, of, of age, but she went off to college. She became best friends with my, my wife, and they were just, just, just inseparable. I mean, they prayed and those types of things. She was just a very dutiful person. She met um, a, a guy, a guy who was pursuing ministry. They end up getting married. They go off to seminary. It's just an unbelievable time in their life. Mid-20s, somewhere 22, 23, 24, somewhere like that. In seminary, as a preacher's daughter and as a preacher's wife, soon to be, Rosie Christie found herself in an apartment all by herself. And it hit her that day that maybe, just maybe, she was using Jesus for her own self. And maybe she was using Jesus because that's just what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be dutiful, and you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do. And it hit her that day as a preacher's daughter and preacher's wife that maybe, just maybe, Jesus was mighty and strong, but maybe not strong and mighty to her. And in fact, she was using Jesus for something other than salvation. She was using Jesus because that's just what she was meant to do. There are some of you in here that have Rosie Christie type stories. Or maybe when I say that, that you have not made it personal. It's something to say Jesus is great and to sing Jesus is great types of songs. But you have to make sure that Jesus is great to you. And you have to declare with your heart and with your mind that he is mightier than you, and there's nothing better 
and nothing greater on the planet than Jesus himself. There is a testimony and there is a validation that starts here on earth, but then it moves on into the heavenlies and it really is amazing. So let me continue to read. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Yes, I'm able to dunk you in water, but he's able to dunk you with God. That's awesome, by the way. Like, he's able to, like, like, yeah, here's God. Here you go. That's amazing. No one has those gifts in here, right? We can baptize you all day long. We can't give away God. That's Jesus' job. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. Remember, he's leaving Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10 is kind of the, the second point that not just earthly validation, but here we have heavenly validation. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. I have that phrase circled in my Bible. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came, out, uh, came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. It is not just human voices that will validate Jesus, but also the voices that are thundering from heaven. There are three things that happen. The heavens are torn apart. The Spirit of God is descending down onto Jesus. And we actually hear God the Father speaking in an audible way unto Jesus. It really is amazing. So first you see the heavens literally like rend in half or torn in half. This doesn't happen very often in scriptures. In fact, when you look at the Red Sea, when um, the Egyptians or, or the Hebrews are leaving Egypt and going toward the Red Sea and the and the Red Sea splits, right, splits, splits apart. This is this word torn. It is actually torn apart. It is split in half. And so this is what is happening to the heavenlies that are literally being torn open and we're able to see inside the actual heavens. It was remarkable. In the same way when Moses stomps on or, or, or breaks the rock, we see that the rock splits open and water comes out. And so this, this rock isn't just cracked. It's actually torn or ripped or rend in two. In the same way, when Jesus is crucified and we see this, this, the scene shift, we see a bloody cross in one moment. And then in an instant, we are shifted into the Holy of Holies because upon Jesus' death, there was a, a, a curtain very similar to this that separated the Holy of Holies with the holy place. And on Jesus' death, that curtain was torn, was ripped in half from top to bottom. And so here, signifying both the beginning and the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see this word torn. Something cataclysmic is happening. Jesus is being validated by all of heaven. It really is amazing. And the, se- the second way that the Spirit of God is descending onto Jesus. Uh, the Greek is even more kind of personal. It says, into, into Jesus like a dove. And this is beautiful, beautiful language. And then lastly, we actually hear God the Father's voice say three, three things. This is my son, and I love him, and I'm proud of him. This is what we see. He's like validating Jesus. He's coming out of the water and he says, this is my son. You need to understand that he's mine. Number two is he's my beloved son. I love him. 
both here and in the transfiguration. He is, Jesus is described as his beloved son. I love you, and he's my son. And you need to listen to him. He, I am well pleased with him. And so this is God the Father speaking on behalf of Jesus. Jesus listening to those words as he's staring into or piercing, looking into the heavenlies. It's not just an earthly validation. It really is a heavenly one that you need to pay attention. And so if God the Father think it's, thinks it's important enough to shift his attention and his syllables toward Jesus for us to hear, how much more so should it be that we should spend our attention to make him mightier than we are? We have to make this a priority of not just our lives or our months or our weeks or our days, but every single moment to take every thought captive, to think about, to set our minds on the things of God because the things of God is that the heavens have been torn and Jesus is being glorified and exalted. It is interesting here that the entire trinity is being represented. If you don't know that word, it's a, it's a word, it's a theological word, meaning that God is three persons and one at the same time. It's a lot to explain for a, for a Sunday morning, but he's three in one. And here we have at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, God the Father speaking, the Spirit of, of God descending and the, and the Son actually receiving both the, the descent and the Word. So we have all three represented right here at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. And this is very similar to another account that was very important inside the Bible, and that was creation. And so at the start of this world, we see that God, in the beginning, God was there. And that God had a Word. And we know throughout scriptures that the word is actually Jesus and the spirit actually descending and hovering over the waters. And so in the same way, both in creation and now here at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, we have the Trinity represented. It is not by accident that this, just this age of creation and now the age of redemption, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit says there is something that will change the world. Everything changes on the person and work of Jesus in this age of redemption and salvation. And God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit just want us to know it's important. Jesus is grander and more mighty than anything in this world. And so the Trinity has been self exaltating, that's not even a word, exalting each other from all eternity past. And so from before creation, right, the world didn't start when this place was created. There was a lot that happened before creation. A lot that happened was that the person and the work of, of the Trinity was well at hand. So the Trinity before creation, they loved each other. They adored one another. They lifted each other up. They were continually surrounding and self, like they were glorifying one another in the same way that they are glorifying the Son here. And they were truly self-existent upon themselves. And so if we're thinking about the things of God versus the things of man, I want us to begin to think relationally. Before creation, 
God existed inside relationships to build the other up, to glorify the other up, to be adored by the other person and to bring adoration toward each one. So the Trinity, the very nucleus of not just society, but reality is found inside relationship. The things of God is inside relationship. Now take what we think is the kind of the central piece of society. Our central piece of reality is ourselves, is where we are the most important, where we are to be like we were supposed to exalt ourselves or bring glory to ourselves. Here, John the Baptist says, there's someone mightier than me. He's deferring. He's having deference to Jesus. And here, God the Father and the Spirit are doing the same thing. They're bringing deference. They're showing, they're exalting Jesus himself. The worst life in the world, the life that you will waste more than any, is where you are simply after self-promotion and self-satisfaction. If your life hasn't been reoriented or reset to glorify Jesus, it will be a wasted life. And the only way that I'm able to say that with such clarity is that God the Father proves it. There is someone more important on this planet than you are. You are not the most important person. Jesus is. And God the Father is elevating him to say, I am well pleased in this, in this, Jesus. And in some way, in some way, God the Father, in the pleasure of Jesus, is able to look at us through Jesus and say, now there is no condemnation for those who are inside Christ Jesus. You cannot take this life and your family and your job and make it all about you. God didn't, and John didn't, and so you shouldn't. The last thing I'll say is that it's not just a heavenly perspective or earthly perspective. There is a second voice And he is really good at his job. Verse 12 and following. And so the voice from heaven has just said, This is my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately. that's That's a strong word. You probably need to underline it. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. There's a second voice. It's not just God the Father's voice that are out, that's out there. There's a second voice, and it's Satan's. It's the adversaries. It is the devil's. To be tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And so in the same way that we have a validation on earth and in heaven, even Satan by posturing to Jesus and tempting him, is validating that I need him to fail. And so the devil here, Satan here, the adversaries here, I think point, the only point that you need to know is that this is not a myth. Evil is not a myth. The embodiment of evil in Satan is not a myth. This is real, and it is personal, and is coming after all of us. And if you do not have a protector, we are all in trouble. Jesus is the strong one. 
He is the one that is mightier than I. He is the one that is able to go into the wilderness, be tempted by the devil, and win. You and I cannot. In chapter 3 of Mark, Jesus is telling a parable, and he's saying it of himself, that I am the one, the only one, who can come and bind the stronger of the two. That there is a strong one. His name is Satan. It's the devil. But I'm the only one that can bind him or bound him up. And so Satan here is not a myth. It's real and it's personal and it's coming after each of us. We are all being tempted in one way or another. And the devil's job, and he's very, very good at it, is the opposite of Mark chapter 8, verse 33. For you are to set your minds on the things of God, not the things of man. So this is the only, we're going to say that verse over and over all semester long. And so the, the devil's job is for, to do the exact opposite, for you to set your minds on the things of man, not the things of God. And he's got an A-plus rating with a better, you know, bureau, right? Like he is awesome at his job, is to get our minds off of God and onto ourselves and onto this earth. The fa- second thing is it's not just the devil, right? But there's a wilderness out there, and the place is wild, and it's meant to devour and destruct you. It's meant to tear you apart and to rend you in pieces. This is a scary place full of temptation in which we cannot be trivial about. In fact, you and I need to understand this word temptation and take it more seriously. Where are you being tempted? At the end of August, some guys and I went out to the Sierra Nevadas and we, we were able to get somewhere between 110 and 120 miles in. And we hiked, I mean, just these grueling long days. And not every day, but a lot of days, uh, the Lord would just uh, give me a phrase for me to meditate on all day long. And so number one was that um, you, you got to be small, right? you got to be small. When you're, when you're in the high Sierras, it's, it's really, really remarkable. Because in the, middle of, in the middle of the trip, you know, day four, day five, or whatever, this idea, because of Jesus in the, temp, in the wilderness, and I was in the wilderness, was just this little phrase, know your temptations. And so all day long, I was able just to meditate. As you kind of hike for hours on end, right, and your body's deteriorating, literally, you know, by every step, you're able just to know yourself and know these things a little bit better. And so just having this dialogue with the Lord of knowing your temptation. And so as I hiked and as, as we just continued to summit one cliff after another and just do these, unre- I mean, just remarkable things and see amazing things, I knew my temptation. And my temptation was that I liked hearing my name more than I liked to hear the Lord's. And so the chill that kind of runs down my back is when someone exalts me or praises me or gives credit to me rather than credit to Jesus. So as I hiked in knowing these temptations, a psalm that we had, we had quoted a couple of mornings earlier, Psalm 8, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name above all of this earth. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name above all of this earth. So the stuff that we were seeing, and we've got pictures, is remarkable. The scenery, the sunsets, the waterfalls, the valleys, the plains, it's all beautiful. But all of that pales in comparison to God's name. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how 
you know, how glorious, how magnificent, how wonderful is your name above everything that we're seeing. And how foolish, how foolish is it for you to stand up on Silver Pass or Donahue Pass, to stare there, stand there, rip your shirt open, and yell, everyone, look at me. It's silly. And yet every single day, for some reason, somehow, we justify in our side that everything needs to be rotating around us. It's about Jesus and his name and his glory, not ours. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will think that this whole thing is about us. And it's not. This type of life is possible. Because it's not just God the Father who's like thundering down from heaven. We actually have a human being who died just like us, tempted just like us, right? Who, 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 who uh, actually beheaded, right? Maybe not like us. We have John the Baptist as kind of, the, kind of the forerunner of Jesus to say that this kind of life is possible. He simply said, there is one who is mightier than I. I just wonder if we can take that phrase this week and start validating Jesus, and start exalting his name above ours. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name above all of the earth. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we pray that we will fall in line with what the heavenlies are doing right now, which is singing the praises of Jesus. There's an anthem going on right now where we're looking at the lamb who was slain. We're looking at you and saying you are the only one that is worthy of our praise. In our time of meditation, before we come to the table, Jesus, I pray that you are working in our hearts and our, in our minds. And so in some, like a moment of, of silence and quiet, I wonder why you are following Jesus or why you are considering to follow Jesus. There's some in here that have no, no good reason why. That really can't answer that question. It's just because, that's just what you do or something like that. I wonder if there's someone in here this morning compelled enough to see that it's not about me. It's, it's all about Jesus. And would like John the Baptist say, today, this morning, I know that Jesus is mightier than me and I can only trust in him. I can't trust in myself any longer. Jesus, I pray that you are working overtime in our hearts, that you're working overtime in our, our minds so that we can take every thought captive, so that we can set our minds on you and what you deem important. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And so we know that a part of what is the things of, of God and not the things of man is this idea of sacrifice. And so when Jesus is, is talking to his disciples in chapter 8 last week, he said that the Son of Man must suffer. 
And so we know that in this economy of of God, if we're going to be thinking about the things of God over us, it's not self-preservation anymore. It's this idea of suffering. And so Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body given for you. This is the new economy of fellowship. It's through my suffering. If that wasn't graphic enough, he took a chalice of wine. And this, this chalice of wine has, I mean, just always been just uh, associated with celebration. Like when there's a wedding, you pull out the wine. When there's a festival, you pull out the wine because these are times of great celebration. And Jesus turns it a little bit and says, this wine is actually a representation of who I am. He said, this is my blood. This wine now represents my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And it will be poured out for you. So the stuff that's supposed to be ingested, right? The stuff that's supposed to bring gaiety and gladness to your heart. This thing, this stuff is actually spilled, poured out for you. In the New Testament, it tells us in what, every time that we gather for us to do this, to have this meal together in remembrance of me. This morning, the reason we follow after Jesus is because he was willing to give up his life to be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that one day, one day, when God the Father rends the heavens, like tears the heavens just apart, and when his voice starts booming down and talking to you, he will say, this is my son, and this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Not because of something that we've done, because of what Jesus has done. If you believe that Jesus has done that and forgiven your sins, you will hear that phrase one day, that this is my faithful and this is my good servant. So this morning, this is a table of sobriety for us to be sober about Jesus's death. But it's also a moment of great celebration that we get what we don't deserve, which is life and communion with God the Father, and he gets to talk to us the way he talked to Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. That is a great celebration. That is worth praying for. So go ahead and stand. We've got uh, men all around the room that is going to to share this meal with you. We've got little pieces of of gluten-free bread and then a little kind of uh, thing of juice there for you. And so everybody needs to gather that. If you're new at Redstone, this may be a new um, kind of uh, response time for you. We just believe that instead of an altar where only one or two people need to respond, that we all need to respond to Jesus in, in some way or another. And so that's how we respond here at Redstone. You're also going to see a couple of people kind of gathering up, whether it's in family groups or community groups or whatever. And so um, if you see that, just know that there's just prayer going on inside those groups. And so if you want to join a group, uh, that, is, that is fine with us. And so uh, Will's going to play a little bit, um, but these stations are open to serve you uh, this communion meal.